นโมทัสสะภะคะวะตุอะระหะตุสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะตุอะระหะตุสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะตุอะระหะตุสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดมังสังขังนามัสัง
perfect compassion. So this practice is important. The cultivation of goodness is important, but it's not the goal. To take this on board, for a lot of us, takes a certain effort. We need to turn around our attention and stop looking outwards so much and look inwards to look at the condition of our awareness. The assumption in Buddhist teachings, again we listen to what the Buddha and the great teachers tell us, the assumption is that awareness is already inherently pure. It's just the pollutions, the greed, hatred and delusion that create suffering. And so our work is not to make awareness pure, but is to stop making it polluted. And in that work, in that effort, we need a lot of support. And so the support is goodness. We need to generate goodness. And, and also the chant we, that we do regularly, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. And the the uh, Karaniyamirta Sutta takes us through a guided contemplation on the cultivation of goodness by way of well-wishing, intentional well-wishing, with the understanding that this goodness nourishes the heart, nourishes the mind, nourishes our being, in this uh, challenging work of purifying awareness from all these pollutions. Yeah. And this is, it's helpful to understand this is not the assumption that is generally accepted in our culture. In, in theistic religions, there's the understanding that you're born in sin and you have to do something about becoming pure. And the effort that is made as a result is often outwardly directed. And so, the, for instance, a lot of the spiritual practice of those on the theistic spiritual journey, uh, the prayers that they make, uh, the prayers of supplication, and asking for the divine, whether it's the, whether it's the Almighty himself or or if you're Roman Catholic, then maybe it's the saints, or if you're a Hindu, then it's the Hindu saints that asking for intercession, basically asking for these great beings to intercede and make things right again, make things good, to be helpful, to change the world so good things happen. This is a large part of the, the spiritual practice, at least those who are on what in Christianity is referred to as the, the cataphatic tradition, the, the path of affirmation, uh, affirming the nature of God, God is good, and those of an apophatic persuasion are perhaps more similar to what the Buddhists uh, understand as the, as the spiritual journey. But most people who are engaged in theistic religions are very committed to goodness and outwardly looking to seek the result of the goodness. In our Buddhist practice, we're not 
paying so much attention to the results of our well-wishing. We may wish beings be well, we may wish the world be well, we may wish that all beings be free from suffering. However, we're not looking out there to check to see if there's any results, we're looking inwards for results. We want to see that the heart is being freed from the warp or the distortion, the distortion of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is a disfigurement of awareness. Being egocentric is a disease that takes place when we don't have wise teachings. And the result is that uh, we suffer the expression of self-centeredness as is greed, hatred and delusion. And it's, as we know, very painful. So the orientation of effort and interest in the Buddhist journey is inward seeking with the presumption that awareness is already inherently pure. We just need to stop polluting it. Taking full responsibility for ourselves might sound selfish, but if we stop and reflect on it, and maybe that's why you know the, the, the discourse the, the, of the acrobat that the Buddha gave, and the, those two acrobats performing their trick, and, and the younger one was climbing up a ladder, bamboo pole, or a ladder on top of the older one's shoulders, and, and, uh, and one day they're having a conversation about how they've got to really work together uh, to keep this show on the road, and and the older one had the view that, that the younger one needed to be paying closer attention to what he was doing and, and uh, he would pay closer attention to what she was doing as she climbed the pole and that way they would keep their act together and, and the younger one disagreed and said, well, from my perspective it's more important that I pay closer attention to what I'm doing and you pay closer attention to what you're doing. And in giving this example, the, the Buddha said it was the younger one who had it right, that when we really pay very close attention to our own hearts and minds, we make an effort to take full responsibility for ourselves, then there's a better chance that there will be mutual benefit. So it's not heedlessly selfish, it's realistically productive. So once again, goodness is not the goal, but goodness is the nutriment, the fruit, is wisdom and so we do need to work very hard to generate the nutriment and now having said all that it's it's not the case that theistic religions are all about uh, trying to change the world I mean also in the Christian teachings it's clearly articulated not through good works alone will you enter the kingdom of heaven or another Example that the, that Jesus gave was, don't worry about the splinter in somebody else's eye. You can need to look at the log that's in your own eye. So the same teaching, the same principle is there. And the important point being that if we don't address the state of our own awareness, the pollution of our own consciousness then whatever we do, however clever our ideas may be, and even how well-intentioned our aspirations might be, there's a very real chance that we'll get overshadowed by greed, hatred and delusion. So building up the storehouse of goodness 
understanding why we need to build up the storehouse of goodness. It's not the goal. It's not making me good or me better than somebody else, but that we need this nutriment to, and to see for ourselves how what happens when, when we dwell on thoughts of well-wishing. What happens if we spend 20 minutes dwelling on a thought, may all beings be well, moving around the people that we live with. May this person be well. May this person be free from suffering. May that person be well. May that person be free from suffering. All the human beings, and then all the animals, and then the unseen beings, all beings, and all realms of existence. We spend 20, 30 minutes doing that. How does it feel? How does the heart feel? Now, I wouldn't encourage trying the opposite, like wishing all beings go to hell. That's not suitable. But we could just imagine that it would be different, for sure. Focusing our hearts on well-wishing generates a quality of beauty and well-being. And focusing our hearts and minds on ill-will doesn't. And that focusing on goodness builds up a certain sort of strength and inner competence and inner confidence you can see it in other areas of goodness as well, like with the cultivation of generosity, to see how that can contribute to a sense of self-confidence. When we exercise generosity, it comes from a place of, I've got something to give. I'm competent. It doesn't have to be much. Just Even giving attention can make us feel good. The expression of generosity leads to well-being, leads, can lead to self-confidence. When our conduct is impeccable, it can lead to self-respect. And this is not something, this is not some religious injunction that is supposed to intimidate us into being kind and generous and impeccable, but rather encourage us to reflect that if we act in these ways, what is the result? Or when we do act in this way, in these ways, generate well-wishing, what is the result? Exercise generosity, what is the result? Live impeccably, what is the result? See for ourselves that there's an inner sort of strength and an ability. And perhaps also in the process come to see the converse is also the case that when we compromise integrity, when we're selfish, when we're mean, when we're unkind, it leads to an inner sense of darkness, of uh, the absence of well-being, weakness. So the questioner asks whether there's a more subtle point to this well-wishing, uh, this generating the wish, may all beings be happy. Well, there is a more subtle point to it, but I would say, at least from what I can see, it's not so much to do with what we're wishing for the other person, but it's what we're looking to see in our own hearts and our own minds. We need to generate the goodness so as to be able to do the work of freeing ourselves 
healing ourselves from the disease of self-centeredness. Self-obsession, self-centeredness makes us miserable. Holding up our sense of self, being egocentric as the most important thing is very unstable. The, the, the self-structure or the ego, as we've discussed many times before, it's not a stable thing. It's a pattern of activity. We weren't born with a personality. We weren't born with an ego. There's something that, that evolves over the first seven or so years. And, and if we hold this up as being our true identity, if we're self-centered, ego-centered, then we feel unstable. We feel unsafe. So it's actually a dysfunction. It's a warp in awareness to be identified on that level. And we need a lot of goodness, the force of goodness, the momentum of goodness, to free us to, so that we're not lost. Being lost in self-centeredness is the, it's the disease of all unawakened beings. And the second question, which in my mind is related, says, how can I learn to surf the waves of samsara? Well, what comes to my mind, the two, two words that come to my mind are agility and balance using the image of surfing the waves if you look at a surfer I've never been a surfer myself but if you watch surfers it's obvious isn't it they, they really have to work on maintaining balance and, and agility how to move around on the board how to move around on the wave and to feel the momentum to feel the force of the wave, how to ride that wave, it requires sensitivity, embodied awareness, embodied awareness, sensitivity, agility, so as to, so as to maintain balance. If you lose balance, then you, you're no longer riding, riding the wave, you, you fall over. And so losing balance, in my mind, equates with being lost in self-centeredness. Losing balance is what happens when we become self-centered. As we're saying, the structure of self is not inherently stable. It's a, it's a configuration of mental-emotional activity and keeps changing. And if we cling to it, identify as it, then we very easily lose balance. And finding balance is learning to let go of that, learning to let go of that false identity. And this, again, is not just a conceptual exercise. People who are seeking security in their thinking mind will struggle to understand these concepts and the concepts have their place as does the 
concept of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, concepts are very helpful, but they're not they're not the practice, or if they are the practice, they're the very first stage of the practice, like the Pariyati, Pati, 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 Vedi, the first stage of practice is study. And then Pati, Pati is practice. So it is, it does matter that we have the right information. It does matter that we have access to these teachings and have a clear concept and we train ourselves. But Mentally, training is not enough. That's, so it's my understanding. This is why we have uh, a training, a teaching. This is why the Buddha has given us uh, this path of practice, which involves the whole body-mind. We're all familiar with the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the quality of awareness, mindfulness of those dhammas which conduce to liberation. So this whole body mind training, this whole body-mind practice is the tools, gives us the tools with which to work so as to be able to extricate ourselves from this condition of being lost in self-centeredness. And all the rest of the teachings about teaching us how to use these tools. On the mental level, yes, there is the mental level, but there's also the emotional level, there's also the physical level. On the mental level, we're taught how to discipline attention, for instance. And we have this, we have this ability to focus attention or to allow our attention to be completely dissipated, undisciplined. So... Uh, learning how to discipline attention in a skillful way. If we discipline attention in an unskillful way, we just hurt ourselves. And it's like disciplining anything. If you're, if you're planting runner beans in the garden and you're disciplining the runner beans to go up the trellis and you're not gentle, then just break them. So disciplining requires a gentleness or disciplining a child who understand that there's consequences to, to their actions needs to be imparted gently, otherwise the child doesn't really learn. So the right kind of discipline of attention, the right kind of information. Again, we, what we were chanting this evening in the, in the Four Noble Truths about dukkha and the cause of dukkha and the Buddha's realisation of the cessation of dukkha and the path to that realization and the expression of that realization. And this is, again, not just a belief system, just believing in the Four Noble Truths. It's not enough really to really get interested. If we have a well-equipped storehouse of goodness, and we feel competent, we feel buoyed up, and then when suffering comes along, we don't just react and turn away from it. Sadness, despair, whatever triggers it, there's plenty of triggers for sadness, plenty of triggers for despair. Can we discipline our attention in the right sort of way so as to turn towards it and look into it? See, what is the real cause of suffering? Like 
everybody is challenged in life. Everybody. Everybody has to face challenges. But do we turn challenges into dukkha or do we turn challenges into understanding? Do we use the challenges of life to purify awareness from the pollutions? Or do we use our challenges just to sink deeper into darkness? Sadly, sadly, very sadly, it's often the latter. But it doesn't have to be the latter. It's, we have faith in the Buddhist teachings and we say the challenges can be used. And uh, once again, everybody has challenges. The Buddha had incredible challenges. Before he was the Buddha, and even after the Buddha was the Buddha, he still had incredible challenges. But the thing is, the Buddha didn't suffer because of his challenges. All beings have challenges. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, although she's phenomenally wealthy, got all sorts of castles and, and palaces that she could live in. You know, I wouldn't want to be in her shoes. She's got all sorts of challenges. Prime Minister of New Zealand, um, coming from Morrinsville, wouldn't protect her from being challenged. And all beings are challenged. The question is, are we equipped with a well-stocked storehouse of goodness so we feel confident to meet the challenge and then exercise this discipline of attention, turn around and face it, really look into it. This feeling of indignation, what is it really? Is this feeling of indignation? I mean, if there's a, a rabid dog in the room that's about to bite us, well then of course we want to get away from there. But if indignation arises, what is it? It's something that we're doing. We're actually doing the indignation. Discontentment. Living in a nice house with plenty of food and nice weather. And we can feel terribly discontented and suffer. What is the reality? What is the reality of that discontentment? We are the agents of that discontentment, but can we really admit that? Can we really see that? So having the right understanding, following what the Buddha encouraged us to do to equip ourselves so that when, when dukkha does arise, we don't just turn away from it and blame the world or blame somebody or distract ourselves. We turn towards it and feel it, you know, like riding the the wave, you've got to be sensitive, you've got to feel the momentum of that wave. Or if you're skiing, you've got to feel the speed, you've got to feel the slope. You've got to be in touch, you've got to be sensitive, you've got to be embodied. Take full responsibility for where we're at. And when I'm feeling sad, what's called for is not looking out there and blaming the world for making me feel sad. There's endless opportunities to feel sad, there always has been. If it hasn't been a pandemic, it's been a war or, or a pestilence or so many causes for feeling sad. And admittedly, we have for the last few decades had ample opportunities to distract ourselves from these aspects of life. And so to some degree, many of us have fallen for the fantasy that we're entitled to be happy. When, and enjoy ourselves, which yeah, that's definitely not the case. It takes much more than, than having good health and having money and having lots of likes on our social media to be happy. To be really happy and really contented, 
from the Buddhist perspective, we need to purify awareness from greed, hatred, and delusion. So having this understanding, it's like having the right programming, having the right programs installed on our computer, having the right antivirus, and if we don't understand the threat from viruses, it's like not understanding the consequences of unethical behaviour, thinking it's okay to lie and there won't be any consequences, when in fact, if we cheat and lie and compromise integrity, we end up losing self-respect, we become inwardly weak, and, and then we wonder what's happened. Often what happens at that point is the pain gets too difficult to bear, and so we turn to distractions, whether it's alcohol or weed, or we distract ourselves from the pain. So this understanding, this information, we need to train ourselves mentally so we understand the real causes of suffering. And then also to train emotionally. How can we ride the wave of inspiration when we come across a teaching or a teacher that, that our heart swells with enthusiasm and yes, 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 this feels so good to have a teaching, have a, have a path of practice that I, I can commit myself to and we get so inspired. Can we ride that wave in a balanced way? Can we really ride that wave without getting lost in excessive enthusiasm? Or getting lost in thoughts? Uh, how it's going to be in the future? Like if somebody's on a surfboard riding a big wave, is caught up in their head, well they don't stay balanced on their board for very long. To ride the emotions means we need to come into the body, into our hearts and really feel what we feel. And often, for many of us, especially for men, we need to really give ourselves to feel what we feel, like, like grief. Grief is so easy to deny. Sadness is so easy to deny. And it's not only our own grief, like if you're a child and... Mm, I can remember when my pet hedgehog died. Henry was his name, when we gave Henry a funeral. I don't, to be honest, I don't think I was terribly upset about it, but sometimes it, the loss of a pet um, can cause a lot of grief, even for a child. But maybe you feel like you're not allowed to go through it. Maybe you're not allowed to show it. And I can, in fact, remember when my grandmother died, and to whom I was very close, and I really didn't want to be seen to be grieving. And so we deny grief, and what happens then? It goes into the basement, it goes into unawareness, and it sits there and turns toxic. It doesn't disappear. Energy doesn't disappear. It gets stuck. No wonder we feel like life is getting dark and dull and start questioning what is the point of life, what's the meaning of life. We've lost the joy, we've lost the vitality, we've lost the aliveness, how come? Well, because we denied so much of life. So understanding this, we perhaps, or intuiting this, we pick up the spiritual exercises and give ourselves into disciplining attention, cultivating kindness, wishing beings be well, and guess what? It starts to work, and then we end up having to face all that stuff that we thought we'd got rid of, and 
that can be very tricky. That's a big wave, a series of big waves, and it takes a lot of skill. So maybe it starts with giving ourselves permission to say, I'm allowed to feel this pain, I'm allowed to feel this grief, even if it feels utterly unreasonable, and often it does. I'm allowed to feel this guilt, I'm allowed to feel this fear. I want to feel it, I want to receive it. It's energy again, it's energy, and it may feel like this wave is too big to ride, but if we've already started on it, we're going to have to ride it, at least until we can get out of it. So giving ourselves permission to feel what we feel emotionally and learn to see where we obstruct ourselves with compulsive judging, like saying, I shouldn't be feeling this infantile emotion at this stage of life. Yes, we should. If we're feeling it, we should be feeling it. Now, whether it's coming from something that we are doing or we've done in the past, or whether it's something that we picked up, that's also an understanding that's pretty important to register. What I refer to as adopted dukkha. is generated dukkha, the, the form that we do ourselves, like denying sadness and denying grief or denying aversion. We're responsible, fully responsible for that. But then there's those around us who maybe they're carrying a lot of denied dukkha as well. Like my parents' generation went through the war. My father went off to war, I think he was 19. I dread to think what that must have been like when I was 19, being sent off to the war. How horrible that must have been. And his, his father died when he was in training camp. And how sad that must have been. Did they have the equipment? Were they skilled to really ride those waves of intense feeling? Maybe, maybe not. And if not, well then they perhaps carried that for all their lives. And sadly, that is what happens. And so if you've got people around you who are carrying a lot of denied dukkha, it can, in a curious sort of way, resonate with our own denied dukkha and, and potentize it. And, make it more difficult and that's worth bearing in mind when we give ourselves into the spiritual exercises and they start to work and we start to feel what we didn't want to feel it's helpful to just bear in mind that maybe this is not all personally generated dukkha maybe this is adopted dukkha as well if not from your immediate family maybe from the group of people you belong to who knows where it comes from? It's still our responsibility to receive it, but maybe it helps us get a little bit more space around it. So this whole body-mind training involving, yes, the, uh, the level of the mind and, and the emotions, but also very much physically. In our training here in the monastery, there's an encouragement for the young monks and novices and anagarikas when they have their own personal time when it's not prescribed to be involved in community activity and they've got their own space in the afternoon, how are they supposed to be using it? Well, I tell them there's four things they should be paying attention to. You're paying attention to formal meditation, paying attention to formal study, paying attention to learning chanting, and, really importantly, paying attention to physical exercise. Now what that might be in 
anybody's, any individual's case, and people are different, but, but it's tremendously important because we can be sitting on our cushion and, and deconstructing all sorts of um, patterns that we've been hiding from or running away from for years and think that we've settled the matter, but as soon as we get up from our cushion and start moving around and, and then somebody says something, then the body contracts and the old pattern gets reconfigured and we lose our temper. How did that happen? Well, it's because whatever understanding we may have reached on the mental level wasn't integrated into the rest of our being. And how do we integrate into the rest of our being? Physical exercise. And walking meditation can be very useful. Or maybe just walking in general. Just going for long walks, vigorous walks. And for some people it means even more vigorous, like swimming or, or jogging. And, or for more disciplines like Tai Chi and Tai Chi like surfing it's interesting to observe how a surfer manages to maintain balance on the board they they bend their knees they lower the center of gravity it's no longer in their head they're not thinking about am I doing what my teacher told me to do on the surfboard they come into their body they bend their knees and sink into their belly the center of gravity is lowered where they can maintain physical balance and when they maintain physical balance they feel great why do people get addicted to, to extreme sports? Because they feel great. They come out of their heads. Bend your knees when you're skiing. And you feel good. Embodied awareness. And likewise, more refined embodied awareness and subtle form of exercise like Tai Chi. A discipline that can very much help us integrate whatever understandings we may have developed and on other levels of our being. So learning how to surf the waves of samsara will begin by giving ourselves permission to feel what we feel. The force of energy that we experience, whether it's gladness or sadness, whether it's liking or disliking. This is not merely ideas. As I've said before, the ideas, that's, that's maybe where we first meet ourselves on the idea level because that's where we spend so much time in our heads. But that's, not, that's just like shaking somebody's hand at the beginning of the conversation. That's not the conversation. The conversation is much more complex, much more complex. It takes much more time and agility and attention. Shaking hands is nothing. Well, it's not nothing. He's trying to have a conversation with somebody and refuse to shake their hand. Well, that, that wouldn't go down very well. And likewise, in this whole body-mind training, if we, we don't have the initial level of an accurate understanding, well, we can end up getting lost, more lost than we were to start off with. So we begin by doing the appropriate level of study, aligning ourselves with the truth that has been realized by beings who know the path much better than we have, and then give ourselves permission to feel what we feel, and then trust and gratitude. Gratitude that we've been given the chance to practice. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Pandamayang dhamma katha yasa dhukarang dhamma